episode 307, the surprise billing legislation, its impact on providers, hospitals, self-insured employers, and most of all, patients. Today, I speak with Lauren Adler. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Lauren Adler, who is the Associate Director of USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy and has a particular focus on surprise billing. I wanted to talk to Lauren about the surprise billing legislation that is going into effect on 1-1-22. I will let Lauren explain, but in short, this legislation removes the patient from the mix. If a provider decides to send a surprise bill, the patient will just pay the copay or coinsurance they normally would have if the provider had been in network. Then it's up to the provider who sent the bill and the insurer to duke it out on the back end. What this back end duking out consists of is the provider sending their big surprise bill to the insurer. The insurer may reply with regrets, hey, we're only going to pay you whatever, a fraction of the big bill. The provider may at that point say, fine, whatever, I'll take it. Or the provider may say, no can do, I'll see you in arbitration. This arbitration that then happens is a style called baseball arbitration, and Lauren gets into the why there. Also, a provider cannot trigger an arbitration more than once every 90 days for the same service. So there's a wrinkle that will slow the roll of any provider with a plan to clog up the system by arbitrating like every claim. I quiz Lauren mercilessly about exactly what the provisions of this legislation are and the winners and the losers. But we also talk a lot about potential ramifications. For example, making surprise bills illegal will potentially accelerate bundled payments, if you think about it, because one of the reasons why bundles have stalled is because various parties who enjoy surprise billing refuse to be a part of the bundle. And then, you know, the whole thing just flies off the track. Also, premiums will go down approximately 1%, they say, for self-insured employer plans. And Lauren and I get into the why of that, or more accurately, Lauren gets into the why of that. And listening to this recording, I realize we do sort of pick on anesthesiologists a bit here. So apologies to those anesthesiologists who have been billing fairly this whole time, which is definitely the majority. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Lauren Adler, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about surprise billing today. What is this legislation? Sure. Yeah, I know. So right at the end of uh, 2020, finishing off the year strong, they passed this uh, new surprise billing legislation. Starting in 2022, all forms of surprise ad and network billing will now be illegal other than the notable exception of ground ambulances. So that is right. It applies to emergency services, non-emergency services, and even air ambulances. First of all, what I'm understanding is that the patient is out of the mix. If a patient winds up in the emergency room, an emergency room happens to be out of network and they rack up a $100,000 bill, it's going to be their insurance carrier and the that provider organization that are duking it out. The patient gets charged whatever their normal copay, coinsurance would have been had that everybody in that whole institution been in network. 
Yeah, so that's the great part, right? The patient is completely out of the middle in a situation that they never should have been in the middle of to begin with. Fundamentally, you, the patient, are only going to be paying whatever it would have been for in-network. So that doesn't mean it's zero, right? If you are in your deductible, it can still be expensive, but at least you're protected from these sort of surprise situations where an out-of-network provider gets to bill you for you know a really astronomical sum. Assuming... Hopefully you didn't get taken there in a ground ambulance, but (laughs) we'll talk about that in a sec. Okay, so now let's just walk through this. Say we have a situation where this just transpired. The provider sends the patient's insurer, I'm going to assume they're going to figure this out, this gigantic bill because the the patient was in fact out of network. So they get that $100,000 bill. What happens? So really what happens, right? So the, as you're saying, right, the patient doesn't have to worry about this from their perspective. They'll have no idea that anything happened behind the scenes, which is sort of the key here. The, the out of network, you know, say it's an anesthesiologist from a surgery, they send a bill for their list price effectively. They say, okay, this was $20,000. I want you to pay this insurance company. The insurance company will then say, okay, I'm going to pay $1,000 for this. I think that's the going rate for the service. I'm offering you $1,000. In most cases, that's just the end of the day. Most of that, that initial payment the insurer making is sort of part of their plan documents and is generally going to be you know, based on what the in-network price might have been. But if that out-of-network provider is unhappy with this you know, hypothetical $1,000 payment, they can initiate this so-called arbitration process. And at that point, right, again, the patient has no idea what's going on here. The provider and the insurer then go to this arbitration process. At the, at the top of your answer there, you said the going rate. So I'm assuming what that means. And now with these transparency, the transparency rule that went into effect on um, <laughs> one one we can see that there is kind of a wide variance between services that various insurers are paying a hospital. So say that that patient has one of the, let's just say, lower paying carriers. If you say the going rate, I'm assuming what you're meaning is that the insurance carrier pays the out-of-network provider whatever they would have paid an in-network provider. Or is the going rate something else? Uh, so I, I'll admit I was sort of purposely vague in that because there's no actual legal requirement at this point. It is the insurer can basically pay their initial out-of-network payment can basically be whatever they want. However, there is sort of a market for these services. These are generally happening in network hospital, for instance. So there's a incentive not to sort of piss off the hospital who you need to be doing negotiations with. And also, right, there is this arbitration option. But to your question, sort of specifically, that average in-network benchmark that the arbitrators are going to look at is based on that specific insurer. So it is Aetna's average in-network price or United's, right? It's not It's not the entire market. It is that insurer, although it is across that entire insurer's business, not um, if you look through the recent transparency rule, you can see wildly different prices between, you know, an individual market product or an HMO product. So, so it would at least it would get rid of those distinctions. But there still may be certainly some insurers are paying less for a service than others. Let's just talk about your average anesthesiologist right now. So, you know, some of them and I read this in a white paper you wrote, Lauren, there's 25 percent of anesthesiologists claims that are billed to Medicare patients had charges that were like nine and a half times the Medicare rate. So that you've got some anesthesiologists that are billing a whole lot of money way over whatever the benchmark happens to be. But then there's a whole lot of them who 
are saying that the in-network rates are super low and they don't want to join a network. And if you do something like this, then basically it doesn't matter whether you join the network or you don't join the network, you're going to get the network rate, which gives payers a whole lot of extra leverage. What's your thought there? Sure. So I think what gets missed in that argument you often hear is that for right for a typical or say take your primary care doctor or a neurologist really any type of doctor that a patient proactively chooses it's certainly true that there is a sort of leverage battle between the insurer and the provider right the insurer says i'll pay you a little bit less if i'm sending you a bunch of patients and that's sort of the deal right the quote unquote price volume trade off that's in every market in this country basically but fundamentally, when you all of a sudden change to an anesthesiologist now, right, the insurer really isn't responsible for what patients the, the anesthesiologist sees. That's really the hospital here. So, so the, it's, you know, whatever hospital you work at as an anesthesiologist, you're going to see whatever patients come in and choose that hospital. So really, your natural negotiating partner is the hospital. And nothing has changed in that dynamic. There is, there's plenty of evidence out there. There's, there's a very clear financial negotiation already going on between anesthesiologists and the hospitals they work at. So nothing is changing about that. The only thing that's changing is there were that subset of anesthesiologists who were additionally saying to insurers, look, I can stay at a network and still treat a bunch of your patients because they're going to end up here whether they want to or not, because they just don't know that I'm at a network. And then I can bill them these extreme, you know, 10 times Medicare prices or more. And, you know, often you're going to just pay me. And that gives me some additional leverage. That additional leverage is gone. But if you weren't, if you weren't leveraging surprise billing beforehand, this law has no effect on you. This is something that I've also read but didn't necessarily connect the dots to the surprise billing legislation that, you know, many have said that it's up to the hospital to keep their, who's ever within the four walls of the hospital under control. So it's not that, you know, individual doctors who are running around within the hospital setting should be setting their own prices and billing separately for things. It's that everybody should be working with the hospital and then the hospital sends one bill. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the idealized version here, right? I, I think if you talk to a normal human being, they and the idea that you would get billed separately by the anesthesiologist, who is clearly a very integral part of the surgery you're getting, and then the surgeon, and then the pathologist where a biopsy was sent, and the hospital, and getting all of those bills separately, I think, and the fact that there is a plausibility that they might have different network statuses, that just, I think, would blow most people's minds and sounds kind of insane. That's fundamentally the issue here is that we allow discord and network status among people who are part of the same service to occur. So once you get rid of that, you force the actual market negotiation to occur without these sort of weird outlier situations where a provider can just sort of balk and say, I'm just going to start surprise billing people if you don't pay me more. And do you feel that this surprise billing legislation in any way advances the aim that the hospital sends one bill, not everybody sending their own bills? So technically, there are still going to be multiple bills. What's happened now is really just that at least you can't get an out-of-network bill when you went to the in-network hospital. So you'll still get a separate bill from the anesthesiologist technically, but at least you know that the cost sharing is going to be the same. And sort of behind the scenes, effectively, you forced this into a negotiation. You forced the insurer and the hospital and the anesthesiologist to figure this all out beforehand. 
so that they kind of are figuring out what the end payment amount is. I actually bet you will get more bundled payments now that the, the sort of loophole of surprise billing is off the table. I think it's more likely the hospital starts selling a bundled service where the anesthesiologist is part of the surgery. And obviously that exists in plenty of places already, right? Medicare has been doing this a lot. Private payers have been doing that. So it may make that more likely and you may end up with one bill, but it, it certainly doesn't. It doesn't require that anyway. Okay. So we're at the part of the story where patient has gone, gotten a out-of-network provider, however that happens. Their insurance company has said to the provider, okay, provider, I'm going to pay you $3,000. And the provider says, what? I want to charge <laughs> 20 Okay, so now what I'm understanding is baseball arbitration gets triggered. How does that happen? Is it the provider that raises their hand and says, we, you know, I'll see you in front of the judge? Basically, it's up to the provider to say, I'm unhappy with that payment. I you basically send a notice and say, I am initiating arbitration. You're sort of forced into this 30-day open negotiation period, as they call it. But fundamentally, unless you can resolve it you know, without going to this process, uh, you end up in front of this arbitrator or judge. And are they special judges in any way, or is it just somebody at the courthouse? They're not literally a judge. They don't have to be a lawyer even to be an arbitrator. People will basically have to apply to become arbitrators. There are plenty of companies who already do this. The arbitration is obviously popular in baseball, given the name, but it is popular in workers' compensation cases. This does happen, and there are a number of states, actually, that use this process already. Basically, you just have to be someone who knows medical coding who does not have a conflict of interest. Right? You can't be affiliated with a health plan or affiliated with you know, a provider group. But then, you know, you get certified. The, the the federal government basically will has has the job of certifying these arbitrators, and then basically, you know, both sides will choose choose an arbitrator, and that that that's who you end up in. So hopefully, these people have some. The folks making these judgments have some expertise, at least in medical coding. And then, you know, what's the difference between baseball arbitration and just like regular old garden variety arbitration? Sure. So if you just say the word arbitration by itself. Typically, that means both sides make all their arguments, and then the arbitrator says, uh, based on everything you've told me, I don't think anything you, I don't think either of your offers are really the fair price. I think $1,030 is the fair price for this service, and I'm just going to say that's what the fair price is. The difference with baseball style, both sides are required to make a final offer. So a final and best offer is the idea here. And then the arbitrator has to choose one or the other. They can't split the baby or do any sort of middle ground here. The idea is right is that this sort of incentivizes reasonable offers because if I say my offer is you know ten million dollars, you're just never going to get chosen, and then they'll choose the other side. So the, the the idea is to sort of encourage folks to kind of get towards a workable solution on their own, honestly, and ideally to settle outside of arbitration, but at least to sort of make a more reasonable offer at the end of the day. Now, in the run-up to this final bill, there was a big tussle between those who were seeking benchmark pricing and then those who were seeking arbitration. Was that the two camps? Probably at the federal level, yeah. That was sort of the, typically, the two lobbying sides were focused on, on that distinction. And what's benchmark then, pricing? The other option and what many states have uh, done in trying to tackle this issue beforehand is just say, okay, when you see an ad-a-network provider at an in-network facility, the insurer just has to 
pay, whatever their average in network rate is, or you know, it can be anything, but whatever their average in network rate is, they just have to pay that. And that's the end of the day. The provider accepts that because we're just calling that the fair rate and then we're all done. There's none of this extra layer of bureaucracy uh, that arbitration adds to the mix. But fundamentally, in practice, arbitration ends up pretty similar, honestly, right? In, in practice, the examples we have in states, at least, arbitrators tend to just simply adopt some rule of thumb like a benchmark and then just choose whoever's party, whichever party's offer is closer to that. In my view, there's actually not a ton of distinction as long as arbitration is sort of implemented well. The attraction of arbitration is you can you can kind of disguise a higher benchmark. So because you've called it arbitration, you could say, actually, you want arbitrators to rule based on provider charges or list prices. And you don't have to quite say that outright. So it's sort of like a Trojan horse for higher payments. And uh, I think is more why it became uh, so popular. Well, that's interesting because there is some pretty, let's just say, fierce <laughs> contention between it was mainly, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the payers and self-insured employers who were on the benchmark side. And then it was the providers who were on the arbitration side. And both of them accused the other, like, you know, if we do arbitration, the, the providers are going to run off with the booty. And then the providers were very actively fighting against this benchmark model, which they said was going to be the doom of providers getting fairly compensated. Yeah, I don't know if uh, if you had the privilege of watching some of the advertisements that these groups uh, did, but they were pretty incomprehensible because all they said is arbitration is evil or benchmark is evil without explaining what that even meant. I found them uh, very hard to parse as uh, very expensive advertisements. But yes, that's broadly the sides. I mean, fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's really consumer groups and patient groups, plus sort of your self-insured employers who obviously care a lot about costs as well on one side and then provider groups on the other. But I think where you get some of that distinction between, you know, where insurers are and where consumer groups are, even though it often sounded like they were kind of on the same side. I think the patient groups fundamentally care about cost. They want surprise bills to be illegal and they want it in a way that that reduces healthcare costs. Insurers, I think, care a little bit more about avoiding the administrative costs and honestly, just sort of the bureaucratic hassle of having to deal with arbitration and probably honestly care a little bit less about costs. In this bill, it does seem like it's kind of a compromise. For consumer groups, right, this is arbitration that is going to be based on in-network prices and not charges. Really, the the provider groups, right, the, their main lobbying goal at the beginning of this was they want arbitration, but they want the arbitrators to make decisions based on uh, charges or list prices. There are a few state laws like that that are sort of, you know, the anesthesiologist dream. And so they thought they had a chance uh, of doing that. But th that's sort of the compromise is we're going to do arbitration, but we're going to base it on in-network rates. So say my ploy here, if I'm one of the ologists, and I don't mean to pick on anesthesiologists, there are others as well who have typically been famous for surprise billing. I'm not sure exactly what the right terminology is there. <laughs> We've commonly used that, that billing mechanism. Is it my plan moving forward if this has been something that I have created into a business model? Is it going to be my idea that I basically just take everything to arbitration? First, yeah, obviously, you're right, right. It is uh, plenty of, uh, of specialties. And it's obviously also not Everyone, this is sort of one of these problems, right? It's a it's a sub it's a relatively small but non-zero subset of these specialties who kind of have really leaned into into surprise billing as a leverage tool. 
So certainly I think their goal would be to take everything to arbitration. However, the the federal law sets it up in a way that it, that arbitration really isn't meant to adjudicate every single claim. It's really much more focused on either infrequent services or very unusual circumstances or stuff like that. At the end of the day, you're actually not you're not allowed to use it for every single claim you have. You have to once you adjudicate a case, you have to wait 90 days before you can actually file a new arbitration. The idea is really to kind of push the facility position and insurance company to negotiate and sort of figure this all out without having to use this process. And then sort of arbitration is really left to kind of adjudicate these, you know, the more unusual cases. If I'm a provider, I can only send one case every 90 days to arbitration. For the same services. So, you know, you can do do different cases for different types of services you do at the same time concurrently. But most providers do some type of service, you know, pretty often. You know, you have to wait 90 days before you can before you can adjudicate a similar case again. So it definitely is going to keep the numbers down. Correct. If I am a nonprofit hospital, you know, your average nonprofit hospital somewhere in the country, how am I thinking about this? Hospitals are not super impacted by the bill. I think it's sort of been interesting, even in the federal debate, they've tried to keep themselves largely on the side. Obviously, they've gotten involved, but they don't view it as having as much money involved. However, there is some aspect of this. So just once you get rid of surprise billing, as I've sort of been harping on, right, you kind of are forcing the hospital a little bit to get more involved in this negotiation. A lot of them already are. If you talk to hospital executives, a lot of them already say, I tell my anesthesiologists or my radiologists, you're accepting every health plan I take or else you're not working here. Or I'm, you know, I'm not going to renew your contract. That's already pretty common. So Right. For a lot of hospitals is basically no change, but certainly. Right. I think there are some hospitals who were kind of profiting off of the practice as well. So if I am an average nonprofit hospital, I mean, maybe this actually gives me a little bit of additional leverage. Like, you know, we've all read those stories about how there's some big ologist group who actually, you know, who pretty much every ologist in that particular region is a member of that group. And they say, you know what, we are going to be out of network. So hospital, if you want any of our ologists, you have to use us and otherwise, good luck. Sounds like in that particular case, this may be a boon to those hospitals. Yeah, at least easier, right? I I think if you talk to a lot of them, they'll, they'll sort of be happy to not have to deal with the headache of trying to of trying to get these groups to to stay in network and that sort of thing. So I think it makes it a, it makes it easier for them in that regard. You know, now it's just going to be more, you know, if you are a what they call sort of a poor payer mix, right? If you have a lot of Medicare and Medicaid patients, you know, you probably end up paying a subsidy to the group who works there because they're, you know, they're getting less of the high revenue commercial patients. Uh, to me, that's the natural order of the world. That is sort of what should be happening. So I think you end up a little bit more back to that negotiation. But but yes, for the, the hospital that sort of wants these folks in network, uh, you know, this makes it easier at this point. Oh, that's interesting. So in cases where you've got, you know, a large Medicaid population, for example, an ologist may not be super keen to work there because their payment rate is going to be so much less. So if I'm the hospital, I might now have to subsidize that ologist what would have happened before is that that additional delta would have been thrown on the shoulders of the patient. So as a hospital, I might be liable actually to pay out dollars that in the past, if I had been, let's just say, very fiscally focused, 
I would not have been liable for. That is the potential financial hit that some hospitals may take here. I do think that is a relatively unusual situation. But yes, there are certainly going to be some hospitals who end up now paying subsidies uh, where they weren't before. And right on the flip side, that is for the anesthesia group, right? That is going to kind of cushion any blow they may take on the payer side of things that they can go back to this more natural order of the, the world there. Okay, so Sam, one of those private equity backed emergency room leasing companies, I guess they are, you know, like the, the these organizations that go to a hospital and they basically say like, we've got an emergency room for you. It's really well known. I mean, go back and listen to the show with Doug Aldean for a lot of information on this. But, you know, they go to areas where there aren't very many options and they have a whole business model that's built around surprise bills. What are those guys doing right now? I can't imagine those folks are super happy with the law. Some of these companies were very clear uh, in the materials that Team Health, who's one of the the large private equity-owned emergency physician staffing companies, right in the materials, they literally sent to Congress. They are very explicit in it that they use surprise billing as a form of leverage to get paid more money. Those are certainly the groups where that's where the law is aimed at. Say I'm thinking to myself as one of these entities that it was my business model, so I'm going to have to rejigger my whole mission statement here or shareholder value prop. Let's just say I'm like, you know what? I'm going to send surprise bills anyway. What happens to me? So that probably won't work out well for you. So in (laughs) in that situation, you're subject to up to a $10,000 fine for every surprise bill you send. I'm pretty sure you're not making that much money on your kind of average surprise bill here. And also, right, it's just against the law. So states can take even stronger action than that if they want. All right, a state can just revoke your licensure if you are a, a particularly bad abuser of this. So I do think you'll at least see people fall in line with the law. I don't really think there's a viable, I mean, obviously there's occasional fraud that happens everywhere, but I think most folks will will fall in line with the law here. If I'm a provider and I'm thinking I'm going to bill a patient anyway, like I'm just going to send a bill. It is fraud. I guess I don't know if it meets the literal definition of fraud in law, but it is It is certainly against the law. It'll be, a, it's against contract law. So states have, a state AG has full power to try you even separately. And then there's also written into the No Surprises Act, the new law. There's written in that the, basically the federal government can fine you up to $10,000. How am I thinking about this if I'm an employer? So if I'm a self-insured employer... You know, I wasn't necessarily on the hook for those surprise bills anyway, because, you know, by definition, they were out of network. So my employees were were paying for them. But as an employer who's concerned about their employees, thumbs up from that respect. But if I'm thinking about this as more holistically or financially, what are the implications? If I'm a self-insured employer, maybe this isn't literally the perfect legislation I would have hoped for, but I'm still pretty happy about having this law now. It's always been difficult to negotiate with with these sort of specific specialties that sort of have this excess leverage. That will now be easier. And I mean, more for the, you know, for your TPA who's doing the the negotiating for those rates here. You should see, uh, I think pretty clearly at the end of the day, you are likely to see somewhat lower premiums. Yes, it is true that now there is going to be more of paying the cost sharing for some of these bills, but the contracted rates you're able to get with these specialties should go down as well. And that that flows through to premium. So, I, you know, the, the Congressional Budget Office, who is the, the sort of neutral scorekeeper uh, of all things Congress, they estimate that the law will reduce premiums by about 1%. So, you know, we're not talking uh, you know, a whole sea change here and how we're doing business, but that's still a net positive to any employer. Health insurance premiums are a pretty big chunk of their labor costs. 
So just to make sure I understand, the reason that premiums may go down is because there are some groups that are, their negotiating leverage is, okay, well, fine, I'll be out of network and I'll surprise Bill. So because they don't have that leverage anymore, they have to be a little bit more reasonable. Exactly, right? I think for those sort of large PE-owned groups I was talking about, right, the, the sort of scales of leverage were tipped in their favor in the old world, and now that'll be more balanced, and that should lead, it should lead to those groups getting paid probably more in line with the rest of the profession, honestly. You know, it does look like some of those groups were getting paid a very healthy 70 80% premium over what other similar groups were getting paid because they were kind of exploiting this leverage. If you can reduce uh, how much you're paying to this, right, the sort of 20% subset of folks who kind of made this a, a strategy, right, that saves money and that should flow through to premiums. I, I actually think there's a possibility it may be more than 1%. We sort of glossed over this, but the Arbitration always has some uncertainty to it just because just in how opaque it is, there's always subject to some lobbying risk effectively that, you know, I, I think provider groups and PE groups hope that they may be able to capture the process. I think that's unlikely. But, you know, when folks are kind of thinking about making these estimations, you got to take that small risk into account. Ground ambulances excluded, frequently cited as a major contributor to patient liabilities. Why? <laughs> that is a great question. I don't think you'll ever get a great answer. Uh, you'll get an answer. The answer that you'll generally get if you ask folks in Congress is uh, sort of a twofold. You know, there's only so much we could bite off here. And then the fact that ground ambulances are often literally run by local governments or fire departments just makes it politically tougher when you're talking about sort of changing the local financing and that sort of thing. Right. That, that is not true in all of the rest of these areas where we're actually talking about literal local government entities as the provider effectively. Th that's at least where you'll get the excuse. But I mean, you're certainly right. Right. This is a very common source of surprise bills. They are it looks like roughly 80 percent of ground ambulance rides are out of network. So this will sort of will be the last frontier to be overly dramatic with language of the sort of surprise billing fight. I'm hopeful. I think there's actually solutions here that can work for both sides. And I think you can come to a solution for ground ambulances that actually is arguably a net positive for local governments. I, I just think there's a education campaign and a little bit more talking to folks that needs to happen to kind of smooth over what we're trying to accomplish here. So it's actually a lot of the work that I'll be doing over the, the next year or two is focused on the, the ground ambulance side of things. You just said that there are solutions that are net positive for local governments that are, you know, in these cases, actually the provider. I mean, I think the solutions look very similar to to the ones that we've seen for other surprise bills in, the, in this recent federal legislation. You know, when you're talking about local governments, they're often not even collecting from some patients. So they, they often don't go after the patient, the commercially insured patient who has a large deductible. They're doing pickups sometimes where, because they didn't transport to a hospital, they're not even getting paid. There's sort of a lot of that going on, and that is much more common when it's a local government running it. You know, actually coming in and forcing the insurer to pay some amount of money here, creating some sort of benchmark that the insurer has to sort of help pay for these services, I think can actually be useful to them. And right in general, the local governments are not charging as much as Right. There's a handful of bigger companies here who are very aggressively consolidating the ground ambulance space. Those companies, you know, maybe see a small hit from a federal law here. But I, I actually think a similar thing, you know, when you're talking about anesthesiologists where, right, if you're an anesthesiologist who wasn't exploiting surprise billing at all, you know, you now have a new little price support in the form of arbitration. So this may actually be a net positive for you. I think you'd get sort of a similar thing 
with ground ambulances, but even more because it's just a, it's a little bit of the Wild West out there in how ground ambulance payment and regulation works. So, you know, if I'm a, actually knowing that you're going to get a payment and it's going to be required by law from the insurance company, I think can actually be very financially beneficial to some of these local governments. Is there anything I neglected to ask you that you think would be important as, as either a summary or a, a point to add? In all federal laws, there is sort of the regulatory side of things. There's going to be a fair amount of implementation questions that come up. And I think the the law is written pretty clear in what its intent is. But there, there will certainly be lobbying to make this more favorable to one side or the other over the next uh, year or so. And do you think, based on all of the work and research that you've done, that it is pretty fair. Yeah, I think there are a couple odd concessions to provider group lobbying that ended up in the bill. But at the end of the day, I think this is a net positive for consumers and should be considered a win. You know, if you don't pass perfect laws generally in Congress, so things that are a net win, I think you got to be happy with that. And from the consumer perspective, surprise bills themselves are now illegal, which is great and just sort of a a load off uh, load off your mind when you're going to the hospital now. And then, right, I think at the end of the day, you should see some modest reduction in premiums, maybe not as large as you might have in an ideal bill, but that is, right, that's not nothing. Lauren, so if someone is interested in learning more about your work or reading some of the things that you've written, where would you direct them for more information? Mostly, um, you can just go to where I work's website, uh, the Brookings Institution. Honestly, Google my name and surprise billion and you will see the dozens of things that I've, I've personally written on the topic. Yes, you have written quite a bit. Lauren Adler, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.